I will be reading from 1 Corinthians, verses 18 through 31. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God, in his wisdom, saw it to, saw it, to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it is all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be the wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. These are the words from God. Wherever God's word is explained, his voice is heard. And we're thankful for that tonight, Father. We're thankful that even now you are trying to get our attention in ways that are new, in ways that are surprising, in ways that interrupt us. Father, you use foolish preaching to demonstrate your power. And so it's my prayer tonight that your power would be seen and heard, tasted in fresh ways tonight. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I keep thinking about all the cars that are driving by tonight. Most of them are filled with people for whom this is an ordinary Friday. They're going to the movies, they're going out to dinner, they're going to see family, they're running errands. I, I keep thinking about how in the eyes of most people, there is nothing about this Friday that is particularly good. And yet for us in this room, we have come to remember what or better who makes this Friday particularly good. The death of Jesus, the Son of God, a death in which we are surprised to find 
life for us on this Friday that we call good. We see in the death of Jesus, in the cross of Christ, we see the love and mercy and grace and power of God in full, on full display for everyone to see. It, it reminds me of when you go to Target and there's a whole wall of televisions. That is Good Friday. Good Friday is the love and mercy of God, his power in high definition. But here's the question. Why is this Friday so good for us and nothing special for everyone else? What do we know, for lack of a better word, what do we know that they don't? One of Jesus' earliest followers, a man named Paul, answers this question in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 34, when he says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. The reason this Friday is so good for us is that in it, the message of the, in the message of the cross, we have experienced the very power of God on the cross. This Jewish carpenter turned rabbi in his early 30s left his mark indelibly on the world. And in his cross, an, an instrument of death history has used throughout, centuries long, in this instrument of death of, of this no one man from Nazareth, we have found joy and peace and strength and mercy and grace. The message of the cross is not merely empty words to us, it is our very life. And yet, Paul says, for those headed for destruction, what we do here tonight, the words that we sing, the words that Rebecca just read, all of it, it is nothing more than a waste of time. It is nothing more than religious mumbo-jumbo. It is nothing more than spiritual silliness. It is foolishness. In the end, there are far better ways to spend a Friday night than remembering the death of a 30-something Jewish man who was crucified by Romans. The message of the cross this Good Friday is the power of God for us, and it is foolishness to others, and it is, this is the case that it is good news for us and silliness for others. This is the case for one simple reason. God wants it that way. God wants it that way. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 19, he says, As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. The reason Good Friday is so good for us and so silly for everyone else is because God wants it that way. The operative for little pieces of words in that paragraph is that God has seen to it. The text says God has discarded the wisdom of the wise. He's destroyed the intelligence of the intelligent. He has seen to it. He has orchestrated events. He has planned them. He has arranged them in such a way that the world will never know it through its own wisdom. He has left the philosophers and the scholars and the brilliant debaters. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, a church where uh, public debate was a spectator sport. For them, what happens on Fox News or CNN on our nightly television happened publicly in the square, and you all went, and you all watched, and you rooted for this guy or that guy to beat the other in, in rhetoric. In a world where everybody likes football, that's my kind of world, you know what I'm saying? But all right. 
He has seen to it that the philosophers and the scholars and the brilliant debaters have been left in the dust. He has made their knowledge, such as it is, useless for the purposes of comprehending him. God has turned the wisdom of the best and brightest of our society into foolishness. He has turned their intelligence into what is in effect a floppy disk. Irrelevant, outdated, and nothing more than an artifact of a world long gone by. And if we're being honest, this seems like a really silly decision on God's part. In fact, it might be a stupid decision if you asked us. Because why wouldn't he want to make what he has done in Christ evident to everyone? And why wouldn't he want to use the powerful and the influential and the well-regarded to make it even more evident? It turns out that God plays by different rules. He's at a different game entirely. He's playing by different rules, rules which Christians try to bend and break all the time. If we just had a Christian president, then we would have a Christian nation. If Oprah just became a Christian, then everyone would be a Christian. If the Browns quarterback became a Christian, maybe they'd win sometimes. I mean, I mean, then everyone would be a Christian. If the Browns won all the time, maybe really then everybody would be a Christian. You know what I mean? Like, he's a Christian, they start winning. We assume that if a powerful person, an influential person, a wise person, an intelligent person, a person of influence, if that person chooses Jesus, it will cause everybody else in our culture to go, oh, how silly I've been. If Oprah thinks this is right, I must. And people are already doing that far too much. But the thing is, that's not God, that's not how God works. He doesn't play by those rules. He's playing an entirely different game. God has seen to it that the intelligent and the wise and the well-regarded and the influential will not on their own comprehend what he did on Good Friday and what, continue, what he continues to do in the world. And it turns out that God has also excluded not just the rational and the intelligent among us, he has excluded the, 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 the very spiritual He says, it is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom so that when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. The message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks who idolized human reason and logic and and rationality because it does not make sense to them that God would die. It does not make sense that God would be rational. And by the way, this whole sermon is not an argument for ignorance. It is not an argument for stupid Christianity. And anyone who uses the verse, you must become like a little child to explain why they don't need to have some knowledge in their heads is misusing the text. You cannot confess that Jesus was Lord without first confessing that Jesus was smart. And if Jesus was smart, so then we ought to be. And yet, we can engage, while we can engage with the arguments of philosophy, of history, to prove the resurrection, to build up evidence for the existence of God, in the end, you could give a perfect argument to a million people and you're not guaranteed that all one million will believe in Jesus. It's not like they're waiting for a rational argument. He also discards the super spiritual in this line when he says it's foolishness to the Greeks who ask for a sign from heaven. What he's talking about is sure that the Jews of his time, but the super spiritual among us, those who are seeking spiritual wisdom and insight. I was watching somebody in my Facebook friends list this week say they were interested to all of the Good Friday and Easter services going around in our community, but also interested in events offered by spirit guides and mediators and tarot card future tellers. 
but there's no secret spirituality that will help you comprehend what Jesus has done. There, will, there is no secret wisdom peddled by some fortune teller that will unlock the secrets of heaven. And so the spiritual are offended. The spiritual are offended. Here is what God has done and what God has always intended to do. Here's what God has made happen. He has made it such that neither the wise nor the powerful nor the influential nor the spiritual nor the religious can comprehend what he did on Good Friday and what he continues to do. And in clearing away the best and brightest by brushing them aside as if it's no big deal, God has done something utterly surprising. He has chosen the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. Look at verses 26 through 28. Paul says, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things that this world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and considers them to, be, to bring to nothing what the world considers important. He has chosen them and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. God, Paul is saying that God has chosen the foolish and the poor and the powerless to point to himself. This is why the way of Jesus has always been overcrowded by the poor and the powerless and the needy and the hungry and the shamed and the addicted. The earliest followers of Jesus were riffraff ragamuffins who had discovered in this person, in this person crucified by the Romans and handed over by the Jews, this, this, this carpenter and turned rabbi from Nazareth, they found in this Jesus the grace that they had always been longing for and the truth that they so desperately needed. Ironically, the people that flock to Jesus are the kind of people church people spend most of their lives trying to avoid. We had a Maundy Thursday service yesterday at our other campus at Grace, and after we served lunch, and there was a little basket at the end of the table where as you bought lunch, uh, you could throw a couple bucks in for your, for your ham salad and your soup. And by the end of lunch, I don't know, there was probably 15 20 $25 in the basket, um, earlier that morning, one of our staff had stepped outside for a second and found a young man, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, sitting on the sidewalk outside of our church, kind of under the eaves of the building, and he was using our free Wi-Fi and, uh, you know, millennials. And he shared with our staff person that he was kicked out of his house that morning and he hadn't eaten lunch since the day before. And our staff person invited him in and sat with him during the worship service and sat with him at lunch. And after lunch was over, we found most of the cash in the basket was missing. This might be news to some of my Grace Campus people. Hi. Love you. <laughs> because we knew everyone else in the room, the obvious culprit, at least in our minds, was this young man. And I felt shock, and I felt frustration, and I felt disappointment. And then after a moment, I felt Jesus reminding me that the person he was most drawn to yesterday, the person that he was most compelled by, the person whose message, the person for whom his message is tailor-built was this young man. And the truth is that though I may come from an entirely different background, that my life story now is very different and will very likely end very differently than his, in Jesus' eyes, he and I are not all that different. After all, God has chosen the despised and powerless, the things counted as nothing at all, 
to be vehicles through whom he demonstrates his power and his grace. And while some of you may consider me wise or influential or I guess having some kind of power, the truth of the matter is that Jesus knows my heart and knows the depths of who I am. And at the end of the day, I am no different than this young man. I am equally a liar, a thief, alone, afraid, and in desperate need of God's grace. And if I could be so bold, neither are you all that different from him. None of us are. The curious thing happens when you start to follow Jesus. You start to forget that it's all about him. You forget that it's all of his doing from beginning to end. Go home tonight and read this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians and notice who the subject of the verbs are. For those of us that don't remember English class, that means who's doing the things. <laughs> Look at who's doing the things and you're going to find something remarkable. It is never, not even once, you or me or us. It is always this whole text about what God is doing, what God began at Good Friday and is continuing right now. You see, what happens the longer you follow Jesus is you get into your head and you are easily deceived by your own good works and your spiritual knowledge and your years of church attendance and giving and service begin to fog over the one most powerful thing Paul says, and it's in verse 29. He says, as a result, no one can boast in the presence of God. No one. Because if the wise could attain it on their own, they could boast. If the intelligent could attain it on their own, they could boast. If the spiritual or religious could attain it on their own, they could boast. If we, because we happen to have the spiritual maturity to recognize the poverty of soul that we have, could attain it only that way, then we could boast. But Paul says, no one, not one person can boast. For all of this, from beginning to end, is God's doing. It does not matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how well not smart you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are or how unspiritual you are. It doesn't matter if your life is a string of successes or an endless march of failures. It doesn't matter if you are influential or forgettable. It doesn't matter if you have, a ch- if you have church in your blood or if you were dragged here by your collar. We call that having a drug problem. Somebody drug you here. (laughs) You were drug here to church. No, I'm not being told that that was a bad joke. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Not a single one of us could boast. Not a single one of us can say that we lifted a finger to accomplish what God has done on that Good Friday and even today. And this is what God has done in verse, in verse 24. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then this is interesting. And the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. I can't boast about anything because it was God who called. It was God who from eternity past knew me and my story, knew every moment of my life, the sweetest joys, the most crushing failures, all the ways I would betray him, all the ways that I would fail. And he called my name. 
And tonight, God may very well be calling yours too. What Paul is getting at and what we see so clearly on Good Friday is that God is clearing away, brushing aside wisdom and success and intelligence and influence and religion and spirituality and rationality. He is is clearing away any possible means of attaining what he has given to us, what he has done for us, so that not a single one of us, not a single person who claims the name of Jesus could say, I did that. He is clearing away any possible means of getting to him, comprehending the message of the cross on our own, so that the only thing that could possibly explain what has happened to us is him. That the only thing that we could look to is him. That it would only ever be about him from beginning to end, from first to last, forever and always. And when we look, when we look at God, when he clears away all of the ways that we could try to lay claim to what he has done for us, all of the ways that we could try to say that, hey, I participated in that, aren't I really good? When, we look, when he clears away all of that, we see him and what we see surprises us and shocks us and frankly, it sometimes even disappoints us because we see weakness. We see weakness. We see Jesus, the Son of God, beaten and bruised and bloody and struggling for every breath. It doesn't look like God to us. God is powerful. God is not weak. God is strong. He does not bleed. God is God. He does not suffer. Looks like weakness. It looks embarrassing. It looks like foolishness. This God on Good Friday hung on a tree. How is the power and wisdom of God on display in the final breaths of this dying man? On Good Friday, God put forward all of his strength and it looked like weakness. On Good Friday, God put forward all of his wisdom and it looked like foolishness. And on Good Friday, when God displayed his wisdom and his power that looked like foolishness, that looked like weakness, the forces of evil mistook that for foolishness and for weakness. Evil and darkness and wickedness. It was like shark week. They smelled blood in the water. And all the forces of evil and wickedness, all the forces of sin and death and the devil came running. As Jesus hung there in the sun, naked And crying out to God, they rushed upon his body. They emptied their strength on Jesus, and Jesus died. But what makes Good Friday so very good is that on Good Friday, in God's wisdom and power, he set a trap. Martin Luther says that the cross is the devil's mousetrap. The devil smelled cheese, and he felt steel. On Good Friday, sin and death and the devil, all that is wrong with the world, all the things that you and I do to ourselves and to each other, our personal contributions to that sin and that evil and that wickedness in the world, all of sin and death and the devil rushed on Jesus, but what they didn't know is that they overplayed their hand. They emptied their strength. And the Gospels recorded that when Jesus looked into heaven with his last breath, he he said, it is finished. And, And the forces of evil and darkness saw him take that last breath. And they went to jump to their, jump up to their feet to celebrate. And they found that they couldn't. 
they wanted to cry out in victory and they found that their voices were hoarse. Their strength was gone. Their power had failed because in the death of Jesus, death and sin and all of the forces of the devil, all the wickedness and unrighteousness and evil in the world died. They didn't just die, they committed suicide. And so Paul writes in Colossians, you were dead because of your sins and your sinful nature. Because of your sinful nature, it wasn't cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers of authorities. He put them to open shame, Paul says, by his victory over them in the cross. As evil and darkness, as wickedness, as war and abuse and injustice and racism and gossip and slander, and heroin, and addiction, and pornography went rushing onto the body of Jesus. They lost their power. And what we experience of them now is is not a fire, it's the smell of smoke after a fire has been extinguished. As evil died and sin's power was broken, something else happened. We were made right with God. And in the display of his power and weakness, God in Christ made us right with himself. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, God has united you with Jesus. For our benefit, for our benefit, side note, God is interested in your benefit. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he's freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast in this. Boast in the Lord. Jesus said, all that the Son sets free are free indeed. And on that Good Friday, and today, we were set free. We were set free from what holds us back and drags us down. And yes, I know you. I know you. I know you're hurt and I know your depression, and I know your anxiety, I know your addictions, I know your bitterness, I know your slander, I know your gossip, I I know the unforgiveness, I know it all, because I love you. The only thing I know more than that is I know mine. My bitterness, my unforgiveness, my shame, my idolatry, I know it. But we were set free. And all who the sun sets free are free indeed. Reinhold Niebuhr, a German theologian. See, if that doesn't prove that we're not supposed to be dumb, I don't know, because I just dropped Reinhold Niebuhr on Good Friday, 2018. Peace out. (laughs) Reinhold Niebuhr, a German theologian, said that there is a limit to even what God's power could do. He said there was a limit to even what God's power could do because he said that power usually overcomes what defies it by destroying it. Power, he said, could not reach the hearts of the rebels. It could not reach those of us who in our rebellion were actually enslaved. And so reflecting on this, an author named Os Guinness says, power can fence us in, but only sacrificial love can find us out. Power can win when we are ranged against it, but it cannot win us. 
Such is the hard, tenacious, willful, festering core of sin at the heart of each one of us that only the equally deliberate, tenacious love disguised in the absurd powerlessness, shame, pain, loneliness, and desolation of the cross for all of us, only that could reach and subvert us. He says there is no other way. It takes the full folly and the weakness of the cross to find us out and win us back. It takes the full folly and weakness of the cross to find us out and win us back. See, God clears away all the arguments of, of the righteous and the spiritual and, and the wise and the powerful and the influential, the, the, the poor, the needy, and the powerless. And in the blink of an eye, we see him hung on a tree like a common criminal. But, but, but when we see him, we see the very wisdom and power of God that sets us free. We see the love that will not let us go. We see mercy and grace abounding to the ends of the earth. God does not reveal his wisdom and power to outsmart us or to overpower us. He reveals his wisdom and power to find us out and win us back. And in what looked like folly and weakness, we found life. In France, on Easter, uh, people greet each other with the French translation of the words I would say because I would butcher them otherwise. In France, they say the love of God is folly. The love of God is folly because nowhere else do we see this foolish, reckless, overwhelming love of God so clearly as we do on the cross. Nowhere do we see the love and mercy and power in such crystal with with, with such crystal clarity as we do on the cross and on Good Friday, which is which is so good to us. God, whose love is so foolish, calls all fools to himself. On Good Friday, God is calling all fools. He's calling you and he is calling me. Foolish as we are right now, weak and needy, poor and powerless, wise and arrogant, he is calling us. He is calling us to be fools today and to become each passing day more foolish. And in his wounds at this cross, in his folly and in his weakness, we hear these words. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, but the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Let me pray. You are our weak and our foolish God. And yet in your weakness, we find strength. In your weakness, we find strength. In your foolishness, we see wisdom. God, you are calling to us tonight. You are calling us to lay down our wisdom. You're calling us to lay down not simply our need, but the way that we try to meet that needs in ways that are not ultimately satisfying to our souls. You are calling us to yourself. And God, this very week, even the most committed have lived outside the boundaries uh, of what you have for us. And yet, your love and wisdom and power on the cross covered that. 
God, right now in this room are people that are doing the, the, the Easter thing and sticking their head in, and I love them, and I'm glad they're here. And God, you love them more, and you don't want them to go to church more. You just want more of them. And you are calling their name. God, would you call, would you be for each of us our righteousness and our sanctification and our holiness, even tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The weakness of God is stronger than, than any human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. Let's just name it. Julia's guitar went out just in time for Good Friday. Is it on? Yet? Is it on? No. I can hear it crackle when you turn that thing. So we're going to go with it anyway. The weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. God reveals his strength to us in brokenness. Later in the supper, he took a cup and he offered it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many and forgiveness of sins. Wisdom is, in being, is found in being emptied, being poured out. And so we come to this table where we find God's wisdom and power and love and mercy are not just ideas for our heads we can taste and touch and smell them. And so the way that we take communion is in a few minutes I'll pray. Um, there'll be kind of two lines. Uh, and so you come forward, we rip off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup, you taste and see what the Lord is good. A couple things. Uh, if you happen to drop your bread in the cup, don't go fishing, please. We wouldn't tell you that if it hadn't happened. Okay. That's the one thing. Uh, the second thing is, if you have a pulse, you are welcome at this table. On that Good Friday, the body of Jesus was broken, his blood was spent, not for a few, but for all. As all of that evil and wickedness converged on the body of Jesus, another thing happened. God did the only thing God does when he sees sin, he responded in wrath. And all of his wrath was poured out on all of the sin there ever was. And so I'm here today to tell you that God is not mad at you. The bucket of his wrath has been empty since a Friday afternoon a few thousand years ago. And he calls you today at this table. Let me be your wisdom. Let me be your righteousness. Let me be your holiness and purity. Uh, and so, um, oh, good job, guys. Look at that. Teamwork to make the dream work. Good job. Uh, um, Steph um, and Art um, and, 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 and every time. Chris, would you come help me?
We also have gluten-free if you need that. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the, the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ. You have become all things for us. So thank you for being the giver and the lover and the faithful one that you are. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. The table is open. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name, that you would be strengthened in your inner being, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, would come to comprehend with all of God's people what is the height and breadth and length and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. May you know what you can't know this evening because of who you know. You are loved in this place, and you were loved long before you walked in this door and long after. Have a happy Easter. You're loved.